I grew up in a church that did not celebrate Lent as a tradition. The only thing I knew about Lent was that for some reason, certain people wouldn't eat certain things, and so our school menu wouldn't serve certain foods. And there was always these other people that just wouldn't do certain things during the Lent season, and I always thought that was kind of a weird, right? I mean, I didn't know what it was. We didn't grow up in the Lent tradition. So when I saw people not eating things or abstaining from doing other things, I looked at it with a bit of oddness. However, the more we look into Lent, we actually begin to see that it's actually a really unique idea practiced long throughout Christian history. Briefly, Lent is a Christian tradition that begins on Ash Wednesday, which was February 14th or Valentine's Day of this year, And it ends on Holy Saturday, the night before Easter. If you counted the days in between those and you didn't count Sundays, you would get 40 days. It would be 40 days in between those two dates. And throughout the history of the church, many followers of Jesus, many church traditions, have used these 40 days as a way of reflecting and symbolically remembering and reflecting on the 40 days that Jesus spent in the desert, where he experienced and endured the temptation of Satan and was prepared for his earthly ministry. For us, our Lent series, The Temptations of Jesus, will be wrestling with the three temptations that Jesus faced so that we can learn to face our own struggles with unhealthy appetites, affirmations, and ambitions. I think if we'd be honest with ourselves, with each other, we could all admit that some of our biggest struggles in life is really around these three areas. Our appetites, our our need for affirmations, and our ambitions. However, more than not, these three things are actually in our lives in very unhealthy, unbalanced, and unchecked ways. And for each one of these three areas, I want to offer just a short kind of explanation or definition or a way of looking at them. If you are a walking definition, no, these are not official Merriam-Webster definitions. They are just a small glimpse of what they look like, general and not literal definitions. Appetites are those things that we desirably hunger for or crave. The affirmations are those things that we need from others. The approval that we seem to need and desire from those around us. Ambitions. What agenda motivates us? What is it that makes us tick? Now, would you agree that many of your struggles and shortcomings in life are around these three things? Right? The need for feeding our appetites for finding affirmation in others, for being driven by ambitions that are selfish? Doesn't that seem to just sum up our brokenness as humanity? Interestingly enough, these three things are exactly what Jesus is tempted with when he enters the desert for 40 days. And those three struggles have been alliterated by, uh, uh, by an author named Michael Breen. And I've shared this article in the past some with you. But just because you've heard this alliteration before, it doesn't mean you should check your brains at the door. I think that we could study this and study this and study this and study this. And we would still need to grow in our mastering of our appetites, our affirmations, and our ambitions. Two, they are fully surrendered and submitted to our Father in heaven. And for that reason, we're going to talk about them again, again, and again. So for the next three weeks, we're going to look at this same passage, and we're going to talk about each one of these temptations. In Lent, we remember that Jesus entered the desert to endure the temptations of the devil, to encounter the Father's presence, to experience the human condition, to be equipped for his ministry, and to excel with authority over the devil, and to actually encourage us 
with a way of living victoriously. Lent is a time to celebrate that Jesus spent 40 days in a dry desert. He entered, he endured, he encountered, he experienced, he was equipped, he excelled, and now he encourages us to do the same. His story lives on to encourage us to redefine our desert experiences. Now, we like that Jesus gave up food for 40 days, but most of us won't even like to give up a meal for a day, or unless we have to, unless the doctor makes us for blood work. Most of us like having an appetite. We have our favorite meals. I sometimes just get into this mood where I say, I need a really good Italian sub. All of us like to eat. None of us like to skip meals. We as Americans are actually a people that are driven by our appetites. We get into moods for things. We need to feed whatever it is we hunger for. And, and sure, the desert, when we think of Jesus in the desert, the desert is beautiful. And we enjoy seeing pictures of sunsets in it, in calendars. And we love engaging it from the touristy, friendly spots, the Grand Canyon, from those roadside vistas where we can look out into it. But most of us are not intentionally and willingly getting lost in the desert so that we can reflect on life. In fact, in our minds, we tend to think of the desert as those moments of hardship in life. We automatically begin to associate the desert with times where God feels distant. None of us want to walk into that willingly. None of us wants to walk into a moment where life is hard and where God feels distant. And even more so, we don't want to be in those scenarios for an extended period of time like Jesus was for 40 days. I'd go nuts without the interaction of other people. In desert situations, most of us are more like Mick Omen, who made national news when he became stranded in the Arizona desert in July of 2017. Mick had taken a road trip to a ghost mining town and decided that he would explore a back desert route home. However, his car broke down on the rugged road in a desert heat that was sweltering. He was, no, he was nowhere, he was near nothing, and he had no cell phone coverage. So he began to pull everything that he had in his car together. He had a road flare, a spoiled sandwich, a bottle of water, and a few choice beverages. Some crackers. And with no cell signal, he decided to record a message on his phone that said, If you find this phone and I didn't do well, please tell my sisters how much I love them. Now he left his SUV and he wandered into the Arizona desert to look for help. He claims he survived on his drinks. And then he found water in a creek, and at one point even turned to drinking his own waste. That sounds rough, right? None of us want to go into a desert in that way. Now listen, Mick was only lost in the desert for 43 hours. And he was already freaking out. He had left notes in his car. He shrunk to the place of drinking his own waste. Most of us do not do well in the desert. Most of us are more like men who are freaking out after 43 hours of a hardship than actually willingly walking into these desert situations. We do not handle the desert well. However, Jesus handles it without food intentionally for 40 days. Jesus models his trust in his heavenly Father that redefines a desert experience that we seem to be afraid of. This morning, we're going to be looking at Matthew 4, 1 through 11. And as I said, in all three weeks of this series, we are going to look at this same passage from a different angle. 
In this passage, Jesus had been baptized by John the Baptist. He has just been baptized. And God the Father has just spoken his loving and authoritative affirmation over Jesus, saying, this is my son with whom I am well pleased. And then there's this beautiful scene where a dove representative of the Holy Spirit comes down and rests on Jesus. And instantly, Jesus, at the start of his ministry there, doesn't push for fame, for crowds, for public reformation. Rather, what he does is he walks into the desert to fast for spiritual formation, for contemplation, and to gain authority over the world's battles. The highlight of his career, he decides to withdraw. Now, in my mind, I liken this to Luke Skywalker. And if you've ever seen the original Star Wars trilogy, Luke is being trained to be this Jedi, this, this warrior for the good side. And at one point, he's had people speak over him. Yes, you have this call. Yes, you can be a Jedi. But you need to go get this next level of training. And Yoda, he runs into this guy named Yoda, who's kind of the master of all masters. And he says, you really can't become a Jedi until you face your darkest self. Until you go into this cave, and he points to this cave and says, until you go in there and you wrestle with who you are, what your thoughts are, and just the down, uh, the brokenness of humanity, until you wrestle with these dark things, you actually don't get to be a force for the good. You don't get to be a Jedi until you can face your thoughts and the realities of life and not be affected by them. You need to rise above. That's exactly what Jesus is doing. Jesus faces life and his mission in the desert willingly and intentionally to be able to rise above the evil in the world. As we will see in this desert story, Jesus depended on his Father in deep ways in this desert experience. It was his Heavenly Father who summoned him into the desert. It was his Heavenly Father who sustained him in the desert. And it was his Heavenly Father who supplies for his mission while he is in the mission, in the desert. I invite you to follow along with me on the overhead street, Matthew 4, 1 through 11. And Jesus was led by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. After fasting 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. The tempter came to him and said, If you are the Son of God, tell these stones to become bread. And Jesus answered, It is written, Man shall not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God. Then the devil took him to the holy city and had him stand on the highest point of the temple. If you are the Son of God, he said, throw yourself down. For it is written, he will command angels concerning you, and they will lift you up in their hands so that you will not strike your foot against a stone. Jesus answered him, it is also written, do not put the Lord your God to test. Again, the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all of the kingdoms of the world and all of their splendor. All this I give you, he said. If you bow down and worship me, Jesus said to him, and return away from me, Satan. For it is written, worship the Lord your God and serve him only. Then the devil left him and the angels come and attended him. Scripture actually came up when we were down in Orlando. And there was a, a gentleman, his, his name was, I believe, Sam Cavey. He's, a, he's an Indian preacher. And he said, do you know who the first person to interpret God's word was? It was Satan. He did it in, a, he did it in Adam and Eve. Did God really say? He does it here again with Jesus. He knows the scriptures. It's all about how he can twist it. And he tries to break this kind of sustaining reliance 
that Jesus has on the Father. Now, it's interesting that Jesus' ministry, which is going to go and change the world, it's going to go and go to the ends of the earth, begins in the desert. Now, the desert was probably these highland hills that are in the Judean desert, just a little west of the Jordan River and the Dead Sea. It was more than likely the same desert in which John the Baptist is baptizing in and around. Most likely the same uh, area in which Jesus... Let me rephrase that. It is the same desert in which we see him appear. It is the, in this passage we see Jesus being sustained, supplied, and even kind of summoned by, his, by God's Spirit in this way. Where John the Baptist prophetically preached, Jesus fasted in preparation. Where God's people had failed in the wilderness prior, we see Jesus prevail and model for us a new sustaining desert situation. In the desert, Jesus fasted from his appetite. Yeah, he literally fasted from eating, but he also fasted from his appetites. Fasting is a way of giving up food and concentrating on prayer. It is for this reason that during the Lent season, many individuals will give up eating something or, or give up meals, and they will practice praying in place of that. Withdrawing and concentrating on prayer is a theme that runs throughout the life of Jesus. There are many times in which Jesus tr- tries to seclude and withdraw himself away to spend time in prayer and in his heavenly Father's presence. It is a rhythm of life that Jesus models here at the beginning of his ministry. It's essential that we realize in our desert situation, so think of a hardship you don't want to be in, or think of a desert you don't want to be in. It is essential we realize that in our desert situations, Jesus redefines them as places in which God's Spirit sustains us, and they also become moments in which we starve ourselves of this world for more of the Father's presence. Let me say that again. It's essential we realize in our desert situations that they are redefined by Jesus to be places in which the presence of God sustains us and as important moments in which we starve ourselves from the world for the more of the Father's presence. Now, the first thing we take away from this passage is that Jesus was summoned into uh, the desert by God's Spirit, right? Jesus was summoned by God's Spirit in the desert. When it says Jesus was led by the Spirit, the word for Spirit there is pneuma. It actually means God's Holy Spirit. The, the study of the Holy Spirit is called pneumonology, and it shares the same root word here. God's Spirit summons him into the desert. Matthew's narrative shows just a chapter before that the Holy Spirit has come, it has landed on Jesus in the form of a dove, and the next thing that he shows, the very next thing he says, and then, so simultaneously, that Jesus is now being led by that Holy Spirit. That passage shows that Jesus was deeply, deeply dependent on his Father's presence, and he trusted it to sustain and supply him as he was summoned by it. As Michael J. Wilkins reflects in his theological book, Increasing Ma- increasingly, Matthew shows that the Spirit is no impersonal force. He is the personal agent who will be intimately involved in guiding Jesus every step of the way in his earthly life. That Holy Spirit we learn from in this, about in this text is just a sustainer and supplier, but it's also able to engage the enemy. For this reason, Jesus is led into the desert. And he has to overcome both the temptations of the human experience and also the temptations of the devil. 
and he has to have authority over them. Jesus sets us to live a life that is spirit-led even when it calls us into the hardships. Now, secondly, we see that Jesus was sustained by God's Spirit in the desert. The way Jesus walked into his Father's presence is what sustained him in the desert. It is what allowed him to redefine and survive this experience. It's interesting that the word for tempter in the NIV there, you saw it says, and then the tempter came to him. Now, the word for tempter there is different than what we see for devil later on when the devil begins to tempt him in other ways. The word for tempter there is actually a word when we read, after fasting 40 days, the tempter came to him. If you are the Son of God, tell these stones to become bread. The word for tempter there is actually a word that has never, as far as I can tell, ever used, been used to describe the devil prior to this part or after this point. In fact, the word itself actually doesn't describe a person. The word there itself describes the fact that Jesus, in his mind, was being put to the test over his own disciplines. It's a word that means his disciplines were being tested. Now, I think it's interesting for a few reasons. It speaks to the fact that Jesus had to depend on the Holy Spirit, not only against the devil, but also against this hunger thing over everyday life of the human condition. And certainly Jesus realized in his hunger that he could have had this rock in front of him turned into bread, but that would have not been an act of being sustained by God's Holy Spirit. It would have been an act of caring for himself. And that in itself might have been the biggest temptation. The other thing it shows is that Satan's able to mess with their minds, and that's where he's most likely to cause weakness in us. The biggest part of this temptation is that Satan is trying to get Jesus to provide for himself. This is how Satan always attacks and tempts. He doesn't force your hand. He plays with your mind to make you break your reliance on God and make provision happen for yourself. Now Jesus replies to the tempter, Man does not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God. And we see that in Matthew 4. 4. Now Jesus shows us that this battle is with hunger and appetite. This is a human condition that is seemingly being used and exploited by the devil. However, Jesus replies that a man doesn't live by kind of feeding the things himself with the things that he hungers for. Rather, he lives by depending on the words that come from God's mouth. The message says it in this way. Listen, it takes more than bread to stay alive. It takes a steady stream of words from God's mouth. In this passage, Jesus is actually quoted from the story of God's people being lost in the wilderness, and it's found in Deuteronomy. It shows the connection between Jesus' temptations in the desert and the experience that his people had in the wilderness. Where they fail, Jesus will prevail. Jesus shows that to sustain ourselves not only in the desert, but also in the things that we crave with as part of our human condition, it is relying on the Holy Spirit for a steady stream of words from God's mouth that will sustain us. You have, been in, you have to be in somebody's presence to hear the words in which they are speaking. And Jesus kind of verbalizes this confession to the devil and to himself audibly to name it and to speak it into existence against the devil's attack. Lastly, God's Spirit used these temptations to supply Jesus for his mission. Theologian Michael J. Wilkins writes about this reality in this way. In a sense, temptation and testing are the flip sides of the same coin. 
Satan intends to get Jesus to go contrary to the Father's will. But in the middle of these circumstances, the Father uses Satan's evil intention to a good purpose of strengthening Jesus for his messianic role. Jesus depends on the Spirit. It sustains him. As a result, it supplies him with the authority over it. An authority that he passes on to us through his Holy Spirit at his departure. In a situation, Satan thinks he's in control. He only, though, gets control when we don't rely on God to sustain us and we break that sense of sustenance for provision of our own type. However, when we stay sustained by God, God shows that He is really the one in charge of the situation by turning the situation for good. We even sing about this reality in the song Sovereign Over Us. And we sing it with this kind of line, even when the enemy means, even when the enemy means for evil, you turn it for our good. Author Max Lucado writes, in God's hand, intended evil becomes eventual good. When we can remain sustained by God, He has a way of supplying for us by turning a situation around for the good. In this way, Jesus redefines the desert experience. It isn't bad. It just supplies us with a new place to experience God's Spirit in a new way, in a sustaining way. Now, the temptation we really want to pay attention to this week is appetite. The first temptation seems rather harmless. After all, it's just kind of meeting his hunger. Jesus has been in the woods for 40 days. Obviously, he's growing in hunger. In fact, even the Scripture says he was hungry. Right? He's been in the desert for a long time. However, at the core, both life and Satan are trying to train wreck Jesus' personal trust in the Father's leading and his trust in God's ability to sustain him in a situation. What Jesus shows us is that he doesn't need to prove or he does, himself. He doesn't need to turn stones into bread to prove who he was. Improving his identity, he would actually undermine the Father's sustaining hand on him. Hunger and appetite aren't bad. It is not wrong to have these desires, to have meals, to have favorite meals. In fact, God has often used and met the appetites of mankind as a way of showing his favor. Listen to a short reflection from author Michael Breen. At the beginning, when the world was still young, the Lord looked upon the crown of his creation the first man and the first woman, and he did three things. He gave them his approval, he satisfied their appetite, and he defined their ambition. In the language of Genesis 1, to 29, the Lord blessed them, gave them everything they needed, and established them as his representatives to rule on his behalf. Now think of other situations that are similar to this. In the wilderness, God knew his people's faith needed their hunger met, and so he sent them provisions of quail and manna. Appetite in itself is not bad. It's when these things become unbalanced, unchecked, and unhealthy that they have issues. The problem, as Michael Breen points out, in life, and what the accuser was really saying, is turn these breads into stone. In other words, rely on yourself for the needs that are so obvious to you now that you're hungry. Blogger Ben Sternke writes this way, but this is not a temptation about food. This is about submission. Appetites can quickly turn into addictions unless we learn to say no 
to them when appropriate. And oftentimes behind our impulse to satisfy our appetites is doubt that God will actually provide for us. Will he really give us the desires of our hearts? Does he really have our best interest at heart? Can we trust him? Likewise, theologian Wilkins writes, temptations of this nature are one of the enemy's ways of trying to get a person to go contrary to God's specific will. Appetite, approval, ambition. These things are the things that kind of generalize Jesus' temptation, and in themselves, they are not bad. But in fact, I would even say when they are lived out correctly, they are God-honoring. However, when they are not lived in balance, when they are not lived in healthy ways, and when they are unchecked, they can be our downfall. Author Caesar Kalowski, for this reason, calls them the three seductions. Again, Michael Breen writes, These are the defining marks of our humanity. The humanity that Jesus came to share. We need God's approval. We have appetites that should be recognized. And we have ambition that must be directed by God if we are to fulfill our destiny as the children of God. I'm sure that like many others, you and I wrestle with these basic temptations. We all struggle with them. Now the problem with appetite is really two things. When it's unchecked, unbalanced, and unhealthy, appetites kind of become our sustaining focus. They take God's place in our lives. And secondly, when we don't trust God to sustain us and we tend to make things happen for ourselves, these are the, pro- the temptations of appetite. These are the areas of how God's people actually failed in the wilderness, and it's how we fail. However, Jesus shows us that a life sustained by the Spirit can prevail over the devil and even over our appetite. Now think with me. Anything you do compulsively, you'll find hard to surrender or to stop. Constantly giving in to our unhealthy, unbalanced, and unchecked appetites will weaken us spiritually, and it will ultimately make us ineffective and unfruitful. The reason people practice fasting in Lent is to give up these forms of appetite that distract us and help us practice a discipline that reminds us to rely on God as our sustainer and the things that we hunger for and crave. So during this Lent season, I'm going to invite you, or actually I'm going to encourage you, maybe even challenge you, to develop a rhythm of life for this sense of Lent. It might not be fasting, but it should be something that teaches you to be summoned, sustained, and supplied by God's Holy Spirit. Christian traditions like the Lent season help us develop these regular and consistent rhythms of life that remind us to acknowledge God's hand on our lives and to align ourselves to his lead. However, if we're not careful, traditions can also become meaningless when it's practiced with legalism or obligation. This happens to many churches and individuals. However, the danger is that we will overreact and throw the baby out with the bathwater. We'll say, no, we don't want to be legalistic. We want to do these kind of traditions. And so we tend to throw the baby out with the bathwater. And then we become void in this place where we miss out on something God might mightily want to do in our lives. So we're going to be reflecting on Lent for three weeks. I don't want to look at it with a time of legalism and obligation. However, I don't want to not talk about what it means to reflect on Jesus' time in the desert at all. I want us each to be challenged to develop our own regular and consistent rhythm of life in which you are personally acknowledging God's hand 
and finding a way to align to it. As I said earlier, Jesus entered the desert to endure the temptations, to encounter the Father's presence, to experience the human condition, and be equipped for his ministry and excel with authority over the devil. Encourage us also in a way to live victoriously. So on the back side of your bulletin, you're going to find these words right here. Remember, reflect, repent, rest, realign, and readiness. I'm going to encourage and challenge you to develop your own rhythm of life, to practice these next three weeks, these six R's during a rhythm of life that helps you reflect on this passage. Just to help you a little bit, I've defined each one of those things. Remember, Jesus also experienced the desert. Reflect on Jesus' journey and dependence. Repent from where the three A's have interfered. Rest in the Father's presence and words. To realign where God is leading your life. And to prepare your heart with readiness for what God is doing. So what do I mean by a rhythm life? I'm talking about something that you will commit to over these next three weeks to process these three things. To grow closer to God through the desert experience. I'm inviting you to commit to being students of this text. You know, they say that 38% of people... When they hear a sermon, by later that evening, they've already forgotten what they've talked about. And within two weeks, less than 1% of people can remember the sermon from two weeks before. And even more interesting, churches that have Sunday night services, they say that the second thing we hear automatically overrides the first. And so many of us will go home and listen to podcasts or watch TV, and it'll automatically erase anything we've talked about in this sermon time. Feels defeating, doesn't it? But let me tell you this, if you develop a rhythm of life in which you focus over the next three weeks or even longer on this text, you are more likely to take something away from it. And even more so, that studies have showed that when you sign your name to actually committing it, like we do with our mortgage or our rent or anything else, when you sign your name and tell somebody else about your commitment, you're more likely to actually accomplish what you do. So in a minute, I'm going to be quiet, and I'm going to invite you to write a rhythm of life. What are you going to do over the next three weeks to practice these six hours? And if you want to be accountable to them, I invite you to sign the commitment there to share it with me and one other person as ways, not so we can go, hey, are you doing that? But just to pray for you, to say, hey, I just pray that Jim Bob really stays into the text. I think when we sign our names to it, it creates a new covenant for us. So I'm going to be quiet, and then we're going to come back together after a few minutes. As you write down your thing, and we'll partake in communion together.